You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Man, I just can't believe we have finally made it here. Wow. Last week was a bit of the bitter part of the move. This week is the joy of it that we have finally made it home. And I I just want to start by thanking a few people that apart from their labor and work, this just wouldn't have been a reality. So just humor me for a moment as I just say thanks to a few of the people who have made made this happen. First, let me just thank Thomas from Small Architect. I think he's somewhere in the room. I have no idea where, but I just want to say thank you for him, for all the work he's put into this. Um, The McElroy and Falls team, they are the ones that helped bring this building out of the ground. Just so grateful for their labor and for their work. Um, Kendra McDougall, she is our personal um, Joanna Gaines. She, she just, all those little touches that you see throughout the building, so much of that has been Kendra and her work. And she's just done such a great job in serving us. And the person who executed that, or the company who executed so many of her, her ideas were the White Sign Company, Brad and his team. And just so thankful for them. They have spent countless hours over the last month. The fact that you can hear anything in this room, uh, Nexos, uh, Travis and Peter back there have just served our church so well in making that possible. Um, The city of Midlothian um, has been such a help along the way. Our bank, CNB, has been such a help. Our pastors and our staff, thank God for them. They have uh, sacrificed so much over the last few months to make this go. Um, For their spouses, Thank you so, so much for allowing them to do that. And uh, and to this precious church family, apart from you using the gifts that God has given you to contribute and to be a part and to be a member of this church, it just wouldn't happen. Apart from your sacrificial generosity, this day doesn't happen. And most of all, could we just say thank you to, uh, to Jesus? So kind to us, so gracious to us. After nine years of waiting, church, we have finally found our home. We're finally here. And, uh, and we're going to go ahead and just explore that theme of home together. You know, that, that theme of home, that, that word, it's one way to think about the entire story of the scriptures. So I want to spend this morning just with you thinking through that theme together, tracing it from Genesis to Revelation. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to the first book of the Bible. Uh, Go ahead and turn to Genesis. And as you're turning there, if you are new with us today, I just want to say thanks for being here. It's such a joy and a privilege uh, to have you this morning. And we're praying that the living God would meet you today in ways that would be so helpful uh, for your soul this morning. And if you would do one thing for us today, there should be a little black connect card in one of the seats that are in front of you. And if you'll just take that black connect card at some point during the service, if you'll fill that card out, At the end of the service, we'll pass around an offering basket, and that would be the one thing we would love to have back from you. That would allow us to to follow up with you and to serve you going forward, which we would just find it to be such a great privilege to do that. So if you would fill that out for us, that would be such a help for us. Okay, Genesis chapter 1. Let me just kind of slide into that text uh, by thinking about longings with you, the, the sort of deeper desires that are in the human heart. There are longings and desires that reside deep within the human heart that most of us are really, we, we live in a way unaware of them. We don't think about them, we, we, especially on a daily basis. It, it's a very rare moment for us to actually consider those sort of deeper longings. 
But those deeper longings and desire that are buried deep down in our hearts are animating and energizing our life. They're getting us up out of bed and, and causing us to get about our day's work. And, and one of those primal sort of longings embedded into the human heart is the longing for home, the, the desire for home. You, you see that desire come out really early in life. If you're a parent, you've seen this. Um, go back to that moment where you sent your five-year-old to stay for a week or a weekend, that first time they're going maybe to their grandparents' house, and they're going to be away from you for a while. And you expect a phone call, don't you? You expect that phone call and to hear that shaky little voice on the other end of the phone say, Mama, Daddy, I, I just I want to go home. I, I'm homesick. Like we have a word to describe that feeling, right, in the English language. It's that word homesick. Now, think about that. You didn't have to teach your five-year-old to feel that. It's some sort of an innate, embedded longing that God has put in the human heart. A few months ago, um, we took our family kind of for an extended weekend up to Oklahoma, where the rest of my family lives. And uh, after that long weekend, I think it was a Monday night, we got back late that night. And I was like the first one in the door, you know, kind of doing that traditional, you're carrying everything, you're, the house that you just packed up and left, and you're, you're bringing everything out of the car. And I turned around as Hannah, our 10-year-old, was walking through the door. And it was such an interesting thing to watch. She came through the door, she dropped everything she was carrying, she took a deep breath and said just out loud for everyone to hear, it's so good to be home. It's so good to be home. We didn't have to teach her to feel that. I'm pretty sure that, that Hannah has never heard the phrase, home sweet home, but I do know this, she's felt that. She, she's felt that deep in her bones because there is a deep longing for home. When, when you think about that word home, in part a home is made of walls, and that's saying something about the context of home and what a home is. It's a place of protection. It's a place that you feel safe from the wilderness that is the outside world. But a home doesn't just have walls, it also has windows. And those windows represent the welcome of home. That home is a place where you feel valued, you feel welcome, you feel important. That's, that's what home is. And that deep longing for home that shows itself so early in life, it has a way of staying with us. We don't just grow out of that someday. That longing stays with us throughout our life. Um, some of you have seen the, moving, uh, the movie Saving Private Ryan. And uh, when I think about that movie, one of the first scenes that I think about is the moment where, uh, I think he was a medic, his name was Wade in the movie. Um, when Wade was shot, and it's a gory scene, it's, it's a rough thing to watch. He's been shot several times in the chest and he is bleeding to death in front of your eyes. He's got a group of people, his fellow soldiers that are around him, they're helpless, they can't do anything for him. They're, they're essentially watching this man die. And if you remember that scene, do you remember the last thing that he says? With, with his last sort of ounce of life, his, his last few breaths, he, he used those last few breaths to, to utter and to mumble these words. I just want to go home. I, I, I just want to go home. And when life cuts through our mask, just like it did for, for Medic Wade, when life cuts through our mask, exposing our deepest longings, in a lot of ways, Private Wade is speaking for all of us. He's speaking for all of us when he says, I just want to go home. Jen Pollock Michelle, in her book, Keeping Place, says it this way. Home represents humanity's most visceral ache, our oldest desire. From the Syrian refugee to the suburbanite, 
People are longing for a place to throw open the door and breathe in belonging. They are looking for home. Now the question is, why is that? Why is that deep longing and desire buried in every human heart? Why is that? Why do you see it in a five-year-old? Why do you not have to teach it to that five-year-old? You just see it come out and expose itself? Why is it in the heart of a grown man when life sort of unmasks his heart? Why is that in there? Well, the story of the scriptures, the story from Genesis to Revelation, I think gives us a framework to answer that question to help us see why it is that that longing is buried in our heart. So I want to trace that story with you from Genesis to Revelation just really briefly. And if you're thinking about the biblical story and you're seeing it through the lens of that word home, I think you could summarize the biblical story in three words. In three words. And here's the first word of the biblical story. You might think of the word construction. Construction. God creates a home. Uh, Taken as a whole, Genesis 1 and 2 is the story of God making a place for his people, a a hospitable place, a place that we can inhabit, a a home. That's what God's doing in Genesis 1 and 2. So if you look in your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, this is how the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As one author put it, commenting on Genesis chapter 1, he said it this way, God began the work of building the grand house called earth. This is what you have happening in Genesis 1.1. He's creating this beautiful universe. And in creating this beautiful universe, the heavens and the earth, he has embedded a billion images of himself into this beautiful creation. But if if you look back at the narrative, these creative acts of God in Genesis 1 and 2, they aren't just about God creating a beautiful universe. Genesis 1 and 2 is primarily about God preparing a place for his people to inhabit, a hospitable place, a place where they could flourish. Now, Now think about Think about the created universe, the the universe that God created. I mean, who knows how many galaxies there are, right? And if God would have just stopped at making all of these beautiful galaxies, the the, the huge expanse over our head, if God would have stopped there, it would have said plenty about God, right? Like Psalm 19 would still be true. The heavens would still declare the glory of God. They would be saying something about the size and the grandeur of God, but God didn't just stop at creating a universe, He also created this little oxygenated ball called Earth. Now, why did God do that? He did that, not not just a universe, but an Earth, oxygenated. He did that so that you would have a hospitable place to live because it's suited to to you and to me. It's a hospitable place for for us to flourish. So think about Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, you just have this flurry of creative activity from God. You've got day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. God's doing things and making things. On display in Genesis chapter one is God's hospitable homemaking heart. That's what he's doing. This is what we're seeing about God. God is taking this untamed world and he's making a place in it. He's making a home in the middle of that untamed world. So if you look at Genesis chapter one, it's interesting to note that on each day, God stops and he commends each day's creative work but by saying, and it was good. So we'll just trace it through the narrative. Day one, this is in verse four. God created the light and the darkness in Genesis chapter one, and he said, and it was good. 
Uh, On day three, the dry land, the seas, and the vegetation. In verses 10 and 12, God calls that good. In day four, he created the sun, the moon, the stars. And in verse 19, he says, that's good. On day five, he creates the animals. Verse 21, he says, and that's good. Day six, it's the crown of his creation. He creates his image bearers, our first parents, Adam and Eve. Along with the rest of God's creation in verse 31, God looks at all of his creative work and he says, and it was very good. Now, it's interesting when you read that Genesis 1 narrative, that creation narrative, to go back to day two and to see and to notice that in day two, you see it in verses six through eight. In day two, it's when God separates the waters from the waters. That is the only day where God doesn't commend his work. It's the only day that is void of a, it is good. It's the only day where God withholds that that commendation of his creativity. Now, why is that? Why is that the day that that good is not pronounced over it? John Selheimer wrote a commentary on the book of Genesis, and he gives an answer to that question that I think is right. He, He says it this way. The reason is that on that day, nothing was created or made that was in fact good or beneficial for humanity. The land was still formless. It was not yet a place where a human being could dwell. So now think about what he's saying. According to Selheimer, and I think he's on this, the, the, the good, when, when God pronounces good, commends his creative work, that good from God's point of view isn't just like a generic sort of statement about his creation. It's not that. That word good is a particular commendation on more and more of the earth becoming more and more hospitable, more habitable, more like a home for you and me. That's what that good is signifying, that God's creative work, what is good is God is taking this untamed world and taming it and making it a place where people like me and you can flourish. Then you get to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 is the zoomed in version of creation. So if you think about Genesis 1 as God creating the cosmos, the universe, everything, Genesis chapter 2 is God doing the neighborhood work. It's the zoomed in version. And this is where God creates man from dust and the woman from the man's rib, and he places them in a garden. And that garden is home. They've got everything in that garden that they need to flourish as human beings. I love how one author summarizes one of the things that we can notice out of Genesis 1 and 2. He says, the creation stories of Genesis 1 and 2 shows our first improbable gift of grace. Here's the first gift of grace that God gives us. Divine hospitality. God made a home for us. He throws open the doors of that home and he welcomes us in. God makes a place for us and then he gives us his presence. In Genesis chapter two, he is walking with our first parents in the cool of the day. We have the place made for us and the presence for whom we were made. That's the first piece of the drama of the biblical story. It's construction. God made a home. But if you know the the biblical story, you know that home doesn't last long, does it? It lasts all of two chapters in the scriptures. And then we have the next part of the biblical drama, the the next word. You might think of the next act as eviction. Eviction. First it's construction, then it's eviction. Three chapters into the Bible, our first parents broke the one house rule that God had set up. I mean, just like if you're a parent in the room, just like you've made some house rules for your home, God made one house rule. And our first parents broke the one house rule. God said in Genesis chapter two, verses 16 and 17, this is the one house rule. 
He said, you can have whatever you want in the garden. This is just God's hospitable, homemaking heart, his generous heart. He's saying, you can have it all. Everything that I've created is yours to enjoy. Just don't eat of the one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's why. Because in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then in Genesis chapter 3, that home-crashing serpent slithers into the story. And in a matter of six verses, our first parents have the forbidden fruit dripping from their lips. And before that fruit has hit their stomachs, sin is already doing its alienating and separating work. It's already, it's already about that. It's already, it's already separating us from the very God that we were made for. And here's the ominous end of Genesis chapter 3. If you look at the last verse of Genesis chapter 3, this is Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. If you want a summary of this, this verse, the summary is the one word, act here. It's eviction. Here's how the story reads. He, God, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Eviction. Because of our sin, we lost the place made for us and the presence for whom we were made. Eviction. We were evicted. We were cast out. The good home that God has made, there is now a blinking sign over it that says vacant. That The doors have been locked. The windows are shuttered. You know, it's interesting to think about the, the entirety of the biblical story. That the Bible gives us a glimpse of the beauty of home. That's Genesis 1 and 2. This homemaking God welcomes us in and invites us in. But the bulk of the Bible invites us to linger over the heartbreak of home's loss. That's Genesis 3 on. It, just, it invites us to read through the story of the people of God in exile, evicted from their home. Cast east of Eden, the wandering begins. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain, in a jealous rage, kills his brother. And do you remember the curse that God pronounced over his life? He, he curses Cain to live a homeless, nomadic life. In Genesis chapter 11, the people of God gather again to try to build their own home. And in building their own home, they try to build this Tower of Babel, if you remember that story in Genesis chapter 11. And in an act of rebellion against God, this is what they're doing. They're making their home apart from God this time. And God comes and pronounces a judgment upon them, and he scatters them. He scatters them from the home, their self-made home. If you think about the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you want to just summarize the patriarchs, here's one way to summarize their life. The patriarchs were pilgrims. That They're longing for home. God had promised them a home, and all of their lives are lived in anticipation of them actually being introduced to their home. If you think about the, the Old Testament people of God, in a lot of ways, they're a reenactment of Genesis 1 through 3. There is a moment in the book of Joshua where the people of God cross over the Jordan and God brings them back home to the land that he has promised. It's, it's in some ways the biblical metaphor for the Garden of Eden. They've been welcomed back into the promised land. But just like in Genesis 3, they send their way out of it again and are evicted. This time they're exiles to, in a foreign land. Just a biblical reenactment of Genesis 1 through 3. That this is what we find happening in the scriptures. Now, this, this story is, is in some ways helping us answer the why. Why is that longing for home so deeply embedded into the human heart? Here's the Bible's answer. 
It's because our hearts are hardwired for home and we've lost it. We've been evicted out of it. This is the reason it's in there and it's the reason that it makes its way out into your life. We've been hardwired for home and we've lost home. The reason you don't have to teach your kids to be homesick is because homesickness is an impulse of Eden. It comes because we all have this faint memory of Eden. I love how Blaise Pascal, he was an old French philosopher. I love how he commented on this. He called it the disinherited prince syndrome. And that's just his way of saying that every human heart has this faint memory of Eden. It has this faint memory of being a prince or a princess in the place that we were created to be and in the presence of the God we were created to love. And because we've lost it, we are all now longing for it. What were disinherited princes, disinherited princesses. Now east of Eden, homesickness is the low-grade fever of the human race. It's in us all, that low-grade longing for home. Now, one of the questions that means we all need to wrestle with is what are we doing with that longing? It's in all of us. If you, if you could unmask your heart and let it speak, you would hear it crying out for home. The question is, what are we doing with that longing? And I think there's, there's basically three options that, that we can go with it, three things that we can do with that longing. One option is we can lock up the longing. We, we can lock it up. This is one of the options. Um, this is what agnostic people do, the, the people who are just saying, you know what, I'm just kind of living my life void of God. I'm trying to do everything I can just to like not think about God in my life. This is that strategy. It's just to, to take that longing and to find some back closet in your home, stuff it in there and hope it never comes out of that closet. Right? That, that's one option with that longing. Uh, but doing that is a lot like Moses trying to bury his Egyptian body. When the wind blows, that body just has and that longing just has a way of reappearing. Lock that longing up as we may. I think in our sort of quiet and, and private moments, we would probably confess something very similar to Julian Barnes in his book, Nothing to be Frightened of. He said this, I don't believe in God. So he, he's coming from that vantage point. That's the way he's seeing life. I don't believe in God, but I sure miss him. That's that longing speaking. That that is that desire for home that's deeply embedded into a human heart being exposed in that moment. So, so one option is to lock up that longing. Uh, another option is we can paint over the longing. Uh, my friends, Cody and Carly Skinner, they recently moved into a new home. And uh, it was a pre-owned home. And so they bought it from someone that had been living in it. And the day after they closed, they were walking through their home. The day after they closed, and they're like, that's interesting. There's mold coming through that freshly painted wall. That, that is not what I expected to see. And in a lot of ways, that's a metaphor so often for what we try to do with this longing. That longing is there, but in order to try to deal with it, in order to try to kind of make it go away, we paint over it. Now, now there are a million different ways to paint over that longing. Some of the ways we try to paint over it are, are these sort of things. We can buy a home to try to paint over it. And then we try to get a bigger home and a bigger home and a bigger home and a bigger home, all trying to stuff something in that deep longing in our soul for home. Another way that we try to paint over that longing for home is with family, the beautiful God-given gift of family. We, we take marriage and we try to make, we, we, we demand of marriage, we try to make marriage satisfy that sort of deep desire, that deep ache in our soul for home. Or even worse, we look at our kids and we demand that our kids satisfy that deep ache and longing for home in us. 
Some people take pornography as a way to paint over that longing for home. We, we, we run after that sort of fake intimacy on a computer screen to try to satisfy that deep longing in us that, that is for home. There are as many ways of painting over that, that longing for home as there are human stories. But like Solomon, it's all vanity in the end. It's all a chasing after the wind. Every one of those sort of paint over strategies, it's like we have turned ourselves into the wind and we have opened our mouth and we're trying to eat the wind as if it will satisfy us. It just doesn't have the capacity to do it. So we can lock up that longing for home. We can try to paint over that longing for home. But there's another thing that we can do with that longing for home. The, the third option is we can actually just bring that longing to Jesus. We can take that longing to God. Now, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, there are a thousand roads that lead into the wilderness, but only one road leads home. And the Bible shows us the one way home, the only road that goes to home, and that's the person of Jesus. Here's the third act of the biblical story. So we go from construction to eviction, and here's the third act, reconstruction. Reconstruction. Although the scriptures introduce us to a hospitable, homemaking God, they bear witness to the hospitality of God. The first gift of grace is divine hospitality. So, so it, it shows us that about God, but the bulk of the Bible acquaints us to the exiled and evicted people of God. That that's who we see in the scriptures. And if you just read the Old Testament, here's what you're reading. You're, you're reading the story of the Old Testament people of God crying out for home. They are saying to God, we want home. That's what you're seeing throughout the Old Testament. And because you see that throughout the story of the scriptures, any reader of the Bible is forced to answer this question. The Bible just sort of forces this question upon us. How will an evicted humanity ever enjoy home again? How is it going to be possible? How are we ever going to get back home? Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets created this anticipation for home. If you just read the prophets in the Old Testament, they are anticipating, they are foretelling this day when the lion will lie down with the lamb, when the mountains will flow with wine, when the, homes, when the homesick hearts of the people of God will finally be satisfied. The prophets are foretelling that day. Then the New Testament dawns, and with the New Testament enters the person of Jesus. John chapter 1 introduces us to Jesus, and here's how it introduces him. It introduces us to a God who left the safety and welcome of heaven, and this God, Jesus, tabernacled among us. He made a home among us. Our hospitable, home-making God left heaven and put upon himself, took upon himself our homelessness. This is the God that we're introduced to. Do you remember how Jesus describes his life in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20? Here's how he says it. He says, here's, here's the life that I'm willingly taking up on your behalf. He says, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He is willingly taking upon ourself or himself our homelessness. And, and do you remember how the, the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, do you remember how the author of Hebrews describes Jesus going to the cross? 
He says something very particular. He's, he's wanting us to notice something very particular about the death of Jesus. He, he says when he went to the cross, he went outside the gate. He went outside the city. He went outside the camp. The, the, the author of Hebrews is wanting us to see that, yes, that the fact that Jesus died for us, that is really important. I, that is at the heart of the good news of Jesus. Jesus died in our place. But it's not just that he died for us, it's how he died for us. In his death, Jesus took upon himself ultimate exile, ultimate banishment. But when Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But when he is crying that out, he was experiencing our eviction, our banishment, the sort of exile that our sin deserves. That's what he's experiencing in that moment. He was banished so that we could be brought in. He received the wrath we deserve so that we could receive the welcome he deserves. He received our eviction so that forever we could come home again and enjoy God. That's the good news of Jesus. In John 14, just, this was just hours before Jesus went to the cross. Jesus looks at his disciples and he said, I am going to prepare a place for you. And this place that I'm going to be preparing, it's got many rooms, but, but I am going to prepare a place for you. But where did Jesus go to prepare a place for his people? He, he went to the cross. That's where he went to prepare a place for his people, for, for you. He, he went to the cross to prepare a home. He, he went to the cross to unshutter the windows, to unlock the doors, and to invite you and I in. That, that's why he went to the cross. So church family, Today, as we received this gift of a new home, can we just celebrate this? I mean, can we just like take a deep breath in and just be refreshed by the goodness of God toward us? I mean, can we celebrate it? Can we rejoice in this moment? And as we do all of that, can we remember these words of a friend of mine? He said this, life is like a buffet of appetizers each of which points us to the feast that awaits us at the banquet table of God. So may we today take a big bite of this appetizer. I mean, we've got permission from God to do that today. I to really enjoy this moment. I mean, to, to really feel deep in our home, our, our souls, a sense of, man, church, we're home. I mean, God is inviting us to take a big bite of the appetizer. And as we do that, to allow that appetizer to wet our taste buds for the coming banquet. Because church, the truth is, we're not home yet, are we? But we're not home yet. Just like those mighty men and women of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, we're still looking for a better country, aren't we? We're still awaiting Revelation 21 and 22 when heaven comes on down to earth. But we're still waiting that moment when in an echo of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God finally and fully reconstructs this broken home called earth and makes it a place where a person like you and me can flourish forever. But we're still awaiting that from God, a place without any weeping or suffering or sickness or death. And that place that's going to be remade for us will also have the presence of the one that we were made for. Of God, just like in Genesis chapter 2, God is going to be walking with us in the cool of the day. 
that that is coming for us. According to Revelation chapter 21, the Bible says that God will dwell with us and that we, God's people, we're going to dwell with God. That day is coming for us. And this moment, Stonegate, this precious appetizer, the, the feeling today of we're home. As a church, we've, we've got a home. It's meant to point us to that banquet. It's meant to point us to that moment when God prepares the table, throws open the doors and says to his people, come on in forever. That's what today is a foretaste of, amen? Let's pray together. And I want to give you just a moment for the Spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful this morning and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. I just can't believe this day has come, church. And this day is saying something about God. It's saying something about what we were made for. My friend Ray Ortland summarizes the gospel like this. We're all idiots, that's the humbling part. We're all idiots. We have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. And anyone can get in on this. Like that incredibly bright future, that banquet of God that today is just an appetizer of. Anyone can get in on this. The home that God has made, reconstructed for his people. Anyone can get in on this. And it would be such a tragic moment to get to that day, that that day when we're standing before God to get to that day and find that, that we're missing out on the one thing that we were made for, on the incredibly bright future that God has for us. It would be the most tragic moment of our life to miss that. And so some of us this morning our step toward Jesus, our response to God today is to put our faith in Jesus, to believe in Jesus. And here's how the Bible describes faith. It describes it as turning away from all the sin that we know disqualifies us. That we're turning away from all of that and we're turning away from all the good works that we think somehow qualify us before God. What we're turning from all of those things, the things that we know disqualify us, the things that we think qualify us, and we're throwing our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're holding up our life to God and we are saying to God, we are banking on Jesus who lived for us, died for us, rose from the dead for us, who took upon himself our homelessness and our eviction. We're banking on him to make a way to get home. And God, we're yielding to you. 
God, you win. We're a yes. You just, you just tell us what you want. God, we are here. We're your people. Anyone can get in on that, that incredibly bright future. Some of us today, your step toward Jesus is, is making that decisive move toward him, but putting your faith in him. And for others in the room, your step this morning is to open up your heart to take a big bite of this appetizer, a big bite of this day and to allow it to create in you an anticipation for our coming home. So, oh God, would you do that this morning? God, would you allow this morning to be a signpost for us, pointing us to the incredibly bright future that you have made for us, that you have remade for us, reconstructed for us? Oh God, would you do that? And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.